Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hello, this is Darla Middlebrook. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Canadian edition of Reader's Digest magazine, a presentation of Airs LA. Today's article is actually the cover story for the month of December and contains four different stories written by four different authors. The author's name will be indicated prior to that author's particular story. The title of the cover story is The True Meaning of Christmas, Four Holiday Stories to Warm Your Heart, Tickle Your Funny Bone, and Inspire You to Reimagine Tradition. Article number one, authored by Philip Preville, Reinventing Christmas. In the late 1960s, my father purchased a fake Christmas tree from Canadian Tire. It had long plastic needles, forest green with a hint of neon, and it smelled of chemicals. Its natural habitat was indoors and polyester curtains and shag carpet. No one could ever mistake it for an actual tree. My four older brothers and I adored that tree. Every year, the five of us looked forward to the mid-December Sunday after Mass, when our father would reach up to the highest shelf in the basement storage room and pull down the box of tree parts for us to assemble. First the aluminum stand, then the broomstick trunk, then the branches of varying lengths. My father padded the box with old newspapers, and we'd laugh at the headlines featuring politicians, athletes, and celebrities of yore. It was a ritual all our own, and we delighted in it every year. Other kids, and their parents, were politely aghast at our tree. They said Christmas wasn't Christmas without a real tree, and there was no point telling them how wrong they were. We knew it was absolutely possible to invest love and joy and gratitude in a fake tree, because that's what we did. And our tree radiated as much true warmth as anyone's. Years later, as I grew up and caught glimpses of my friends' traditions, I came to realize that we weren't the only household with holiday quirks. Every family Christmas is an elaborate performance that looks weird from the outside, That's precisely the source of its charm. Every family Christmas is an elaborate performance that looks weird from the outside. That's precisely the source of its charm. My brothers and I, even in adulthood and scattered across the continent, always made the late December pilgrimage to our parents' cottage in Canmore, Alberta, and to the familiar comforts and lifelong relationships that reconnected us to each other and to ourselves. I never even imagined celebrating Christmas anywhere else until I got married. When you marry someone, the saying goes, you marry their family as well, and that includes their holiday rituals. When Lynn and I were married in 2003, we did what most young couples do. We visited both our parents' homes for the holidays. Living in Peterborough, Ontario, 
We drove to Montreal to celebrate Christmas Eve with Lynn's parents and brother and his family, where Christmas was never complete without herring salad, apparently a German tradition. Christmas morning was then spent traveling as we flew to Calgary and drove to Canmore for the ever-growing Preville family gathering round the old fake tree. Then Lynn gave birth to our first son, and a few years later to his twin baby brothers, and Christmas turned into a nightmare. Long drives with three squirmy kids in the back, followed by long flights with our family of five, squeezed into three economy seats, strewn with board books and binkies. My family's brood had swollen to the point where we no longer fit in my parents' home, So we'd set ourselves up in a rented condo and shuttle back and forth for baby feedings and early bedtimes. But we never acknowledged to each other how exhausting our holiday routine had become because we wanted to give our children the same joys of Christmas that we knew as kids. The other thing that we didn't acknowledge was that those holiday joys were waning fast. Travel weariness was only part of the problem. Our relationships with our parents and siblings were increasingly stilted. We were all professionals with careers and parents with kids. Yet in both households, everyone treated each other like the teenagers we once were, not the adults we had become. Christmas was stuck in time, and so were we. It all came to a head during the quarantine Christmas of 2011. That's the year we and our three sons came down with norovirus on the flight to Calgary. We holed up in our rented condo and spent the first 48 hours voiding our gastrointestinal tracts and the next 48 trying to ward off my mother, who seesawed between loving concern I made you some chicken soup. And browbeating. Enough is enough. Come join the family. We couldn't get out of Canmore fast enough. By the time we did, I was so strung out that, with my extended family present to wave goodbye, I backed the minivan into a signpost on the way out of the parking lot, leaving the bumper dangling. I drove to the airport in silence knowing with a mix of resignation and determination that I was done going home for the holidays. Every family Christmas is an elaborate performance, and we are all so attached to our part in the play that we lose track of both the script and the audience. Who are we performing for, and why? We do it to reconnect with the family roles and relationships that shaped us in our formative years, but it's a double-edged sword. Since Lynn and I are the youngest in our families, that often meant being treated like and behaving like the, quote, kid sibling, end quote, again. Those roles no longer bear any resemblance to us, but they are hardwired. In moments like Christmas, so laden with tradition and expectation, it's nearly impossible to rewrite the script. Once we got back to Peterborough, Lynn and I vowed to blow Christmas up and rebuild it from scratch. We'd celebrate it in our own home and develop our own traditions, some borrowed, some new. 
It was not an easy transition. We bargained hard about which of our respective family traditions would remain part of our own hybrid Christmas. The herring salad made the cut. I've come to enjoy it. And while we've adopted many of my favorite family traditions, including tortillas for breakfast on Christmas morning, we abandoned the fake tree. Lynn said Christmas just wouldn't be Christmas without a real tree. There was no point telling her how wrong she was. So now, every year, we bring a Nova Scotia pine into the house. I've put my own stamp on the ritual by sawing a puck-shaped disc from the bottom of each trunk. I've labeled and saved them all, and they adorn our hearth every December. In any event, the tree itself is less important than the love and joy and gratitude you invest in it and who you do it for. My tree is no longer a monument to my brothers and parents, but to my wife and kids, a change that was long overdue. We finally made each other the focus of our Christmas, and we've never gone back. Story number two, authored by Anne T. Donahue. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through my head were the haunting three words my friend Julia said. "'Santa's not real!' It was 1994, and at age nine, I was way too old to still believe in Santa Claus. And yet, blindsided by Julia's casual response to my Santa enthusiasm that year, I doubled down and branded Julia a liar. After all, movies had taught me that Christmas magic outweighed what I'd already begun suspecting as fact. What did she know anyway? I had it on good authority that one year my dad heard sleigh bells and hooves on our roofs himself. But by Christmas Eve, I was consumed by the feeling that Julia wasn't wrong, that the concept of St. Nick didn't really make sense, and that there was no way the mall Santa I was staring at while standing next to my parents could possibly make it to the North Pole and back to Cambridge, Ontario by nightfall. My dad headed off to buy a new suit for the holidays, and my mom led me to Shoppers Drug Mart. I gazed at the chocolate while analyzing the Christmas music playing over the store speakers. With each mention of Santa Claus or red-nosed reindeer, I started to feel warm, sick, like I'd stumbled upon a truth I was never meant to know and would be forever cursed by its effects. I silently followed my mom up to the register and felt the words rising, knowing there'd be no turning back once they tumbled out. Mom, I said as the cashier rang us through. Are you and Dad Santa? The cashier began scanning items faster and faster, her widened eyes glued to the digital display. I didn't wait for a response before pressing on. Is Santa real? The cashier was moving at record speed, determined to get me and my impending meltdown out and away. My mother, forever honest, simply looked at me. Well, sweetie, 
What do you think? That was enough. I wasn't stupid. Neither of us was. So, as if I were William Defoe in platoon, experiencing a slow death at the hands of his enemies, I crumbled under my new, cold, cruel reality, devoid of magic, and I wailed for my lost innocence, which is what I was still doing as we walked across the concourse to Tip Top to meet my dad, who was reveling in his new blazer. What do you guys think? He started to ask, the grin on his face vanishing as he saw me in tears. Oh, my God, what now? My mom gave a simple, grave answer. She knows. Knows what? Santa's not real, I wept, among the pleated slacks, button-ups, and sensible sport coats, all while trying to hide my outbursts from the salesman, whose biggest concern was now whether my dad would be going through with his purchase. He did. By the time we made it to the car, I was crying quietly, gazing out the window and vowing never to forget the pain their deception had caused. At home, I sat miserably on the living room floor, reconciling with the fact that our Christmas tree was an obvious farce, an empty symbol that was no longer a testament to Santa's generosity. I bet my parents had even eaten the cookies and milk I'd left under it simply because they could. You know, my mom said as my dad tended to his new tweed treasure, I know this is hard, but now you've got to help keep the magic alive for your little cousin. You get to make her Christmases feel extra special. This made me perk up. Suddenly, I understood the true meaning of Christmas. Not presents or folklore or the man in red, but power. The power to give and the power to take away. As my first act of this newfound adulthood, I agreed never to ruin Santa Claus for anyone. But I also vowed to keep tabs on my enemies, like Julia, who tried to strip me of the magic of Christmas and would always be on my naughty list. A list even more powerful than Santa Claus's. Story number three. Entitled, All the Trimmings by Megan Murphy. Hosting Christmas dinner is a big job. A rite of passage, really. I'm in my early 40s, and to this day, I have yet to oversee the cooking of the Yuletide turkey. I assume it's because I don't have children, as hosting in my family usually falls to the household still getting visits from Santa. Either that, or they think I'm a terrible cook. I am lucky to have a close relationship with my two sisters. Growing up, we tended to seamlessly correspond with birth order stereotypes. The eldest, Kate was a responsible, bossy perfectionist. I was the people-pleasing, attention-seeking middle child, and Carrie, the baby, was charming, sensitive, and entirely lacking in self-discipline. We were, as much as I hate to admit it, cliches. Kate wrapped gifts in brown paper with perfectly tied bows on top, and diligently passed around hors d'oeuvres as people opened their presents. 
I was unnecessarily effusive about the tube socks and plastic earrings I received from a great aunt. Wow, they're for my feet. And it doesn't matter that I don't have my ears pierced. I can do that before dessert, if you like. And Carrie would be gushed over by our grandmother because, apparently, she was a genius for knowing how to dress her new Barbie. As we've aged and matured, I like to think our predetermined traits have become more nuanced. When I was 25, there was a seismic shift as our family was forced to redefine itself. Our dad, who was a beloved larger-than-life figure in our world, died from cancer. The hole he left was palpable. Who would become our new sage elder? Who would sit opposite my mother at the table? When our extended family inevitably got on each other's nerves at the next holiday gathering, who would lighten the mood? Newly married Kate and her husband Shane lived in a split-level house in our hometown of Peterborough, Ontario. A year after our father's passing, our family's Martha Stewart volunteered to host her first Christmas dinner at the ripe old age of 27. There would be twelve mouths to feed, our extended family included. The challenge was on. As a 1980s parent, my mom was a casserole and jelly mold type. At Christmas, our candles were battery-operated, our turkey was a pre-stuffed frozen butterball, and our tree looked like the bobble department in Sears had thrown up on it. The holiday was homey and carb-filled. My sister Kate, on the other hand, prepared for her inaugural hosting sortie by making wreaths, folding napkin swans, and decorating her tree with color-coordinated fabric, tinsel, and tiny white lights. And the piece de resistance? A fresh, not even remotely, butterball turkey. On December 25, 2005, we gathered at Kate's and opened our stockings, while sipping wine and nibbling on appetizers that looked like they'd been plucked from a magazine spread. My dad, who had a mischievous sense of humor, was famous for his joke gifts, a ritual we wanted to continue after his death. Carrie received a sparkly wand so she could relive her stint in the grade school baton twirling club. Mom got a pair of full-bottomed underwear with, quote, granny panties, end quote, splashed across the derriere. Shane was gifted a bag of barbecue-flavored crickets because it was just gross enough to be funny. We were proud of ourselves for carrying on Dad's tradition, despite our grief. Still, the clock was ticking, bellies were grumbling, and best behaviors were starting to fray. Cooking a turkey is more complicated than one might think. It involves brining and basting and, apparently, math. A bird requires five hours of thawing per pound and then 13 minutes of cooking per pound after that. This was all too cumbersome for our mother, so when Butterball invented the pre-stuffed cooked-from-frozen fowl, she thought she'd died and gone to Christmas dinner heaven. Having never seen our mother cook anything but butterball, my sister, days earlier, had put her fresh turkey into the freezer to keep it, well, fresh. 
When I enter the kitchen at 7.30 p.m. for an ETA on the gravy boat, I found Kate in a state of panic. It was a perfect storm. The oven had stopped working, and the turkey was still rock solid. She'd been duped by both General Electric and the culinary shortcomings of our domestically challenged mother. Everything's ruined. I didn't know a real turkey needed to be defrosted. She cried, looking defeated as her oven mitts hung off the ends of her arms like sagging lobster claws. Ever the supportive younger sister, I burst into laughter, grabbed my boots and a shovel, and cut a path through the heavy snow to the barbecue. We transferred the bird to the back deck, uncorked more wine, and headed into the den filled with starving aunts to break the news. While the turkey was on the grill, Carrie twirled her baton to the Rocky-themed song. My mom donned her new granny panties over her dress pants, and Shane passed around handfuls of barbecue crickets, which goes surprisingly well with a chilled Chardonnay. At midnight, the bird was ready to be carved. The side dishes were microwaved, and the pleasantly pickled guests sat down to devour Kate's holiday repast. A frozen bird and a broken oven forced us to let go of our usual expectations as to how Christmas should go. Subsequently, we'd all been freed from our assigned roles. We were all allowed to just be. No one made passive-aggressive comments about the consistency of the mashed potatoes. No one was told to take their elbows off the table, and no one had a bad time. It turns out that hosting Christmas dinner wasn't so hard after all. It just required everything to go perfectly wrong so it could be perfectly right.